Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. We've recently launched our NBC Sunday series, Every other Sunday, we are hosting a live webinar series that is also streamed on Facebook, on our Facebook page, Surviving Breast Cancer Org, and we talk about all specific topics related to the metastatic breast cancer community. This ranges from dealing with grief, talking to your children about cancer, preparing an estate planning, the difference between palliative care and hospice, etc. So this is just a great series. Obviously, it is specific to MBC, but of course, all stages, all people are always welcome. Today on Breast Cancer Conversations, I am pleased to be speaking with Matt Whitaker from Compassionate Choices and Dee Dee Turpin from A Necessary Conversation. Today's webinar and podcast will be moderated by Abigail Johnston. Our webinar series is also made possible because of our friends and partnership that we have at Citizen. Survivingbreastcancer.org and Citizen are joining forces to get you full control over your medical records so you can find better treatment options, including clinical trials. With end-to-end military-grade encryption to keep your data secure, Citizen ensures that you decide who you share your information with. Your privacy comes first. We couldn't be more excited to share this free resource with our community. We encourage you to check out Citizen. And because you heard it here first through survivingbreastcancer.org, Breast Cancer Conversations podcast, we have a special URL just for you. You can go to citizen forward slash SBC trials. That's spelled C-I-I-T-I-Z-E-N forward slash SBC trials. Now let's jump into today's podcast where we talk about end of life choices. What is actually a death doula? And how do we get family involved when we're going through death, grieving, and loss? It's all here for you today on the episode. Welcome to the conversation. My name is Matt Whitaker. I live in the Pacific Northwest. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I work for Compassion and Choices. And Compassion and Choices is, we say, we're the nation's oldest, largest, and most active nonprofit working to improve care and expand the idea of options at the end of life, um, which is kind of a mission statement way to say that we believe that people should be able to approach the end of life with the same type of agency um, that they approach the rest of their life uh, and should have decisions up until that final moment that allow them to exercise their own personal values, um, that allow them to focus on what's important to them. And we believe that in in focusing on those things, planning for those things, talking about those options, um, working to uh, make more of those options available if that's necessary in places, that we allow people kind of to have a starting point from which they can work backwards. That in talking about those end-of-life options and decisions, um, oftentimes we discover a lot about how we want to approach the very current moment that we're in right now. And so for us, you know, for me, especially, it's a very empowering thing to talk about this, to have these conversations that, as you said, Abigail, we're all thinking about, but we're not necessarily talking to one another about. And so when we do that in community, uh, it opens up a lot to us. So Compassion Choices does that um, kind of in a three-tiered way. We have an education arm that does things like these conversations today. Uh, It's all about helping people realize what those options are and and make them uh, more available to folks just through empowerment and education. 
We have a support arm. So we actually have a consultation service, uh, social workers and counselors who have a phone line that people can contact as well as a very immense resource section on our website that goes through and says, you know, are you, are you looking to interview a hospice? Here's a guide on the questions to ask. Are you establishing care with a new doctor? Here's a guide to how to kind of build trust and relationship, um, as well as an advocacy arm, which is, again, looking at uh, people's options in any given place and, and them saying, you know, um, we think that we need a post here in my state. We're, we're working towards that. Or our advanced directives don't uh, honor what it is that's important to us. We want to expand them so that they're better. Or um, what we're mostly known for is our work around medical aid and dying, which is a small percentage of our work, but one that's really important, which is, again, giving people the option in states to determine uh, a little bit more about the time and the manner of their death by having the option to, to take aid and dying medication. And so we have, we do a lot. If you go to our website, you'll be like, there is a lot of stuff here um, that we do. But mainly what we do is try to, again, help people uh, talk about that ending point and then work backwards from that and really do that in a values-based way. And for our listeners, can you define what PULST is? Um, PULST is Physicians Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment or Portable Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, or in some places they're called Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Um, they're available in many, many states. They started here in Oregon. And what they are is a, uh, a way to take some of those decisions that are in advanced directives, which are these documents that we create that say, if I'm able, unable to speak for myself, here's the type of care I would want. And they translate those to medical orders. So things that really are binding and come into play in emergent circumstances. So if I were to uh, become unconscious while riding the subway uh, and paramedics rushed, you know, uh, to the scene, they would be able to pull up on a, on a registry and say, this person wants CPR, or this person wants uh, defibrillation, all these different things. And they come into play when people are oftentimes kind of in the terminal phase of an illness or people who are quite elderly. So that in that very emergent, quick instance, um, those people are able to make those decisions. So true. Thank you, Matt. We also have Dee Dee here with us today, and she is a death doula, which I am so excited to learn more about. I think sometimes we hear about birth doulas at the beginning of life, but we can also have them at the end of life. So welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations. So great to have you here, Dee Dee. My name is Dee Dee Turpin. I have a company called A Necessary Conversation, which is funny because I've heard Matt speak about conversations and necessary a couple of different times. Can you define doula for us? What is a doula? Um, a doula is a Greek word, and it took kind of came mainstream in the 70s with birth doulas or birth midwives for women who didn't want to have the traditional births. They wanted to have a home birth. They wanted to have not necessarily medical professionals around, but they wanted to be supported uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So fast forward, there has been a death positive movement probably happening for about 10 years. There's a few pioneers in this movement. And um, out of that came death doulas. So death doulas, it's fairly new. It's become more and more popular. You hear more and more people talk about it. It's, um, again, they're non-medical professionals, but they offer support physically, emotionally, spiritually, and educationally. And it can be all aspects 
of end of life and after death and after death care, home funerals. Um, in my particular death doula business, I think it's really important, like what you were sharing before, to have these conversations if people are willing. And I think platforms like this help people, help to reduce the stigma, help to, because everybody is interested about death. Everybody has a story about death, but there's no platform to take it to. So um, the more we talk about it, the less of a stigma it becomes. And it becomes more natural. Death is a natural part of life. And we have um, separated ourselves so much from death, dying, and grief that it becomes very isolating. For me, what I think, I have what's called the three E's, which is explore, empower, and enrich. And I think before you can empower and make your decisions on what you want and don't want towards end of life and after death, it's really important to explore the backstory we all have to death because we all have one. And um, the more we can be, the more we can unearth that story and the more we can um, kind of dissect it a little bit to what has become a story and what is truth. Mm. Because, you know, uh, the story oftentimes becomes greater than the reality of it. And um, I don't think that we can really change our experiences at end of life unless we really explore what they are. So that's the exploration part that I talk about that I think that um, is super important to move forward so where you can empower yourself. And very similar to what Matt was talking about, that's through, you know, the advanced directive. That's through the aftercare or after death care directive. That's like, you know, where do you want to be buried? You want to have a natural burial. I mean, there's so much. There's just like, I feel like end of life is such a huge pie and death doula is just a small sliver. Compassion choices is a small sliver. Your breast community is a small sliver and, but we all have something to add to it. And, um, and that's what I like about, you know, being a death doula is that um, for a lot of people sitting vigil as a death doula is really important. And I love that, but I love more, Importantly, I love being with families or individuals, seeing their relationships with death, dying, and grief change in a more positive mm. way. So where they become more comfortable and um, and it's not so scary because if we we're all going to enter some kind of death scenario, whether it's with someone we love or ourselves, and if we come into these situations with anxiety or terror or fear or unresolved issues all that stuff's going to come right at the end. So my hope is, is that we can have these conversations beforehand to kind of start clearing the way similar to what Matt was saying. So you can start to live your life now and be totally present. And you don't have that fear of that death boogeyman, you know, because we're all going to die. We just don't know when. Yes. I love your three E's explore and power and enrich. I think those are, those are great goals to, mm -hmm. to have, especially towards the end of life. And um, I didn't realize that it was the Civil War that kind of set us on this trajectory. But it, it is a beautiful thing that has become so clinical. And, and I feel like that's exactly what's happening with death as well, that this is a very normal, natural human transition. And yet it's become so clinical 
it's become so legalized. Like what is the legal definition of death or who's allowed to say somebody is dead and, and all yes. of those things, it's become so structured and so clinical that I love this idea of taking ownership of your own relationship um, to death. And Didi, in your work as a death doula, have you seen that different cultures or different groups of people respond differently to this process? Absolutely. Americans are very death phobic. We are such a death phobic society. And you go to different cultures where families live together, generations live together. When the grandparents or somebody is old, the kids are around it. When somebody dies, the kids or uh, the children or anyone is part of the death. They are not separated. And there's been studies showing that, um, that everyone that experiences death openly experiences, they all experience grief, but it's not as traumatic. Mm. Because when you are actually with someone that's dying or with somebody that has died and you get to spend time with the body, which is part of what uh, home funerals are about or dying at home is about, is that it takes so long for your mind to realize somebody's dead. So, you know, you go mm. through that denial, somebody's dead, where they go, what, what's going on. And uh, if you have the ability to be with the uh, loved one or family member or friends or anyone, your mind gets to start connecting with oh my God, they are truly dead. This is their body. But we can, st I mean, and there's just a different connection to it. Yes, we need hospice and palliative and compassion and choices. But when the families are part of the process, they have an experience that will transform them. They will experience death after that going forward with a different mindset and a different heart set. They will see that as heartbreaking and as sad and difficult as death and dying can be, there's also a beauty. There's that silver lining that they get to walk through and be present with someone they love and not bring all their garbage with them and all their backstory with them and all the family dynamics with them, but they can be truly present for the person that is dying and to just have a sacred open space for them. It's pretty amazing. I'm reminded of our, our last conversation where Jen O'Brien, who's going to be coming uh, back on our series in a couple of weeks, talked about the intimacy of mm -hmm. being a caregiver as her husband was dying and going through the you know, palliative and then hospice mm -hmm. process. Yes, I've been watching Matt's head shake up and down in agreement as well. Matt, can you share a little bit more about the effect on the families? Yeah, well, Didi, you know, I was raised Southern Baptist, so I was just sitting here ready to yell amen over and over <laughs> and over again as you were talking um, on all of those pieces. But yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Didi, in pointing out that when the family is involved, it changes everything, uh, not not just for the person who's being cared for, but but everyone that touches that story. Um, you know, I, I've been, been at Compassion Choices for quite a bit, but come from the hospice world and... and uh, a role at one was kind of a community uh, uh, worker with, with the hospice. And one of my jobs was when a person who had called at kind of too late in the game, 
maybe it was you know the night before a person passed or the night that a person passed saying we need hospice and we'd think you know we're not going to make it to the morning when our nurse can go out and admit this person based on everything that they're telling us but we'll do our best and uh, we would find out that that person died in the night and my job mm-hmm. was to go out many times and be with that family as all of the things that happen when kind of even if it's expected and unexpected quote death happens which is that the sheriff or the coroner comes out and does an investigation and then you have to figure out you know who's the mortuary and all these things that if a person hasn't planned for obviously are incredibly overwhelming in that moment and uh, and I'm as you were talking Didi about the, the what happens when a family is invited into that process even in small ways I was reminded of a story of a, a gentleman who I went to the home and he had he had passed and was in the back bedroom and all the family was there kind of in the front living room and the uh, sheriff deputy was leaving as i was getting there and i said you know how are things going and he said oh they're good they're just sitting you know in the living room and i thought oh we're gonna have to do some work here um and figure out you know what it is they want because i knew it was a couple hours for the mortuary to come all these different things and so went in and um you know, we just talked for a little bit and I asked about the person and we start, they started to open up a bit. And then um, they talked about how they, one of them said, I don't want to be in the house when they come to get him. I don't think I could take it. And I said, you know, that's okay. That's your choice. But I said, you know, something that sometimes helps is if, you know, maybe is there a beautiful quilt that he loved? And they said, well, yeah, actually he always loved laying under this one on the sofa. I said, well, maybe, Instead of it just being a thing where they come and he goes, maybe when, when they come and they bring him out, he, they can pause in this room that he loved and we can put that quilt over him. So, oh, yeah. I said, well, I have a background in, in uh, um, theology. And I said, is there a, uh, did he have a spiritual tradition? He said, yeah, he was brought up Christian. His uncle was a preacher and all these things, you know. I said, well, do we, is he close with the uncle? Would you want to call him? And maybe he could get on speakerphone. He could say a prayer over him before he leaves. You know, all of these little things that went from it being this disconnected experience of this loved one that was far off, was in a back bedroom, hidden away from them, to uh, something that was like literally they were able to kind of put hands on it in a, in a new way, to, to put him in something beautiful, to look at him in a different way for the last time. And I watched kind of the, the tenor of that group that was so anxious in that front room um, change as it became them realizing that there was a way for them to show love and to honor that person uh, in a very real way. And the reason why we're so passionate, compassion and choices about doing all these planning steps and doing things ahead of time is because it's not just about the practical medical decisions. It's about ahead of time saying in this moment where again, we're uncomfortable and we don't know what to do. Here are the ways that you can show me love. And it might be, in the type of medical decisions that are made, or it might be in the type of music that's played at a funeral, or it might be in uh, how it is that hospice is involved, or it might be in the fact that I'd like you to to look at, you know, wiping my head with a with a cloth as something that's as beautiful as when you would make my favorite pie. Now that I'm no longer able to eat or feed myself, all of these different things kind of come into play, and they're, they're impossible if you don't have those conversations without those conversations, it becomes much more difficult and it involves it, it, You need someone to come in and insert themselves in the process to try to help with those pieces. But if you do that work ahead of time, it becomes such 
uh, a richer, um, richer experience. So, you know, while all of the pieces that we talk about with advanced directives and having conversations and talking about what you value and what you, you don't and things like that uh, are beautiful, practical, pragmatic things, but the pragmatic becomes sacred uh, and spiritual and emotionally significant uh, in those instances. Um, where, where that comes into play. So I, I think, and Didi, you know, you're asked about cultural differences. You know, I'm from Georgia and, uh, and now live on the West Coast. And it is remarkable, the differences in how we approach these different things uh, uh, on, on different you know, poles. So it's, uh, it's highly personal. We were getting some questions in the chat about the cost of a doula. And is that something that is covered by insurance? We were talking a little bit also with Matt and organizations. Um, Didi, do you work independently or are there pros and cons with being associated with other nonprofits or hospitals as a doula, the same way that people would investigate like a birth doula? And with a lot of doulas, they become very uncomfortable because most people do this because they love it and they want to be of service. So it becomes very uncomfortable with putting a monetary value on it. So um, a lot of times I leave it up to people to do whatever they can or what they feel is appropriate. Will that change in time? Possibly. I don't know. Um, right now, I just feel like there's such a great need and there's not a lot of awareness around death doula that I just kind of feel like, let's just, you know, I can help wherever I can. Um, as far as being part of associations, I think it's great. Um, I have found resistance. You know, I'm also a hospice volunteer and they're not quite, well, this was a couple of years ago. They're kind of like, what is a death doula? And are you competing? And we're not, we're not competing. It's all just about enhancing somebody's experience. And it goes back to that pie um, that I talked about before. We each bring a different sliver to it. So all the different slivers can add up to a big yummy pie if we're just open to it. We can keep somebody alive for years, Jerry Schiavo, you know, you can keep somebody alive, but is that quality? And then that goes back to, you know, similar to what Matt was saying, what do you want if you cannot speak for yourself? Um, and a lot of times what people have done is that they're so fearful to talk about this, that they've relegated their decisions to loved ones, to people who want, don't necessarily want that kind of um, pressure or burden on themselves to make the decision. Oh my God, oh my God, am I making the right decision? Or, um, and then you have families come in and say, uh, no, mom wouldn't have wanted that. And somebody else say, no, but she told me she wanted it. So it's so important to just, you know, it's, it's a conversation that just has to be had over and over and over again. So where you become, it's like a loose garment. You're just comfortable in it. Um, I don't know if that's me being Pollyanna about, um, people becoming more comfortable, but I do think that it is going to happen and it is happening. More and more people like the boomers are saying, you know, I want to do it differently. So when you mentioned the sliding scale, I think you were by implication answering the question that your services are typically not covered by insurance. Did I no, understand that correctly? Okay, That good. is absolutely correct. Can you talk a little bit about NEAR? I know that that's how um, we got in contact with you and I wanted to make sure to remember to ask you to talk about it. Yes. Well, I wish Christy was here because she's the expert. But um, NEAR, as I understand it, is a platform where there's all different types of uh, 
services that are offered and you can go on to them individually. They have, I think they have a few death doula services. I think they have marriage and family um, therapy. I'm also sad that Christy wasn't able to join us, but she's put together a platform for just any of the different practitioners who come in at, at the end of life, whether it's a massage therapist or music therapy or mental health support with a mental health therapist, death doulas, et cetera, where you go to, to her website and instead of having to hunt for all those different specialties, they're all there in one place, which I think mm -hmm. is a wonderful grassroots type of way um, to, to pull practitioners together in the area that she's in. Um, but if you don't have such a wonderful program like NEAR, um, you're left having to do some of that yourself. So Matt, can you talk a little bit about how Compassion and Choices vets doctors who are open to end-of-life discussions and how you guys um, make sure that people get that information? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know, the main thing that we do, uh, you know, we keep using this word empower, 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 empower. Um, but, you know, so many of us approach our healthcare as something that happens to us, not something that we participate in. And oftentimes the only, uh, the only thing that's really necessary is just the awareness that you have a role in your healthcare that can kind of almost flip a switch for a person. It certainly has for me um, as being someone who, uh, you know, of course has this great reverence to medicine. Both of my parents are in the medical field and I was in the medical field and it's like this hallowed thing, you know, um, the uh, way that I see doctors and pharmacists and nurses and things. Um, but when you start seeing it as a partnership, uh, suddenly kind of things shift a bit. And so a big piece of what we do is giving people tools to be able to enter into that partnership, into a trusting relationship. So, for example, we have uh, a lot of tools around what we call finding a partner doctor, which is how is it that I have a conversation where I get to kind of the part of the matter of whether or not our values are going to line up when it really matters most. And whether or not this person who I'm receiving care for even recognizes the fact that I'm a partner in this. Um, you know, things are changing in medicine, but there's still a lot of paternalism uh, that takes place. And um, especially around the world of cancer care and treatment um, when it comes to, you know, what is the right course for one person versus another person versus kind of this one size fits all conveyor belt that oftentimes people find themselves on. And so, um, you know, most of what we do is not about vetting individual providers, but it's about giving people tools to have those conversations and see if their individual provider matches with their values, because they're all different. Um, the way that my uh, uncles and aunts in Georgia um, are looking at their care and what their worldview is, is different than uh, the people that Dee might serve in Manhattan Beach, California. Uh, and all of those things need to kind of conspire for a person to have um, kind of the experience that they need. Now, we also do a lot of work around when it comes to hospice, people realizing that they have a choice there um, in who their provider is and what they provide and whether or not that aligns. You know, the way that hospice works is that everybody gets this kind of flat per diem rate uh, to care for a person. And there are certain standard things that, that are uh, um, outlined by Medicare that have to take place, nursing visits, chaplaincy, social work, uh, nursing aides helping with uh, daily living. But there's also a lot of discretion. So, you know, certain hospices have 
acupuncturists and massage therapists and Reiki workers and things like that. Others uh, might be really uh, into music therapy and that's something that they uh, pride themselves on. Uh, for others, they might have a much more like spiritual bent. So all of these things come to play uh, and a person, again, early on deciding what are the things I value, what are important, then become questions that they can ask. You know, you can interview your hospice. We have documents about that where you can say, here's the, what are important to me. What do, you, what do you do around those pieces? And again, when I worked in hospice, I did a lot of community work. And there were times that you would meet with the family and say, you know, I don't think we're the right one. Um, you might want to call up, you know, this person that I know well and that works well with the kind of things that are important to you. So we do a lot of work around those pieces, both the individual empowerment, but also helping people realize, you know, that systemically they can find things that um, are important to them. And, you know, we have to do a lot of this work ourselves. I think that that is changing. Um, but, you know, Didi, I think, said it so well when she was talking about, you know, um, doulas and when it comes to the payment thing and the, the comfort and discomfort and, and things like that. You know, the most caring people in the world are not great um, uh, self-promoters. And, and that's why platforms like this are so important. But some of the, you know, you, you, hospice social workers and nurses, the most selfless, amazing, giving people that you'll ever meet, but don't ask them to, you know, market themselves because they don't do this for attention. Just like Dee Dee doesn't do this for attention. She does this because she cares about people. And so, again, a lot of what our role is as a big organization that has a marketing arm and has people who know social media and all these things is about promoting those people who are doing this great work and making sure that people are able to, as you said, find those people who are out there in the world, those community resources, and also able to ask the right questions. Thank you, Abigail, Didi, and Matt for being on Breast Cancer Conversations today. I appreciate all of your insights and information on how we can navigate end-of-life choices, how we can get families involved, and the role that a death doula plays in supporting our choices. We look forward to continuing our webinar series. It happens every two weeks where we bring Abigail and some guest speakers on our show. You can check out the full lineup at survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you would like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, you can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.